Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, September 29, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. He's back. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. How was Italy? Oh, Italy was amazing. Uh, (laughs) I had not been there since like 1982. So, um, so... (laughs) It was almost like being there for the first time. Uh, I did not get to see anything in terms of performance, but I I came close. Uh, I almost got a rush ticket for Rigoletto at La Scala, the world famous Mm. La Scala Opera House. Have you been, by the way? Did you in '82? Did you get to go to La Scala? No, I have never. uh, I have never. Yeah, I did see an opera once at Covent Garden in in London. Uh And then I saw one uh, in, um, uh, actually, I think in East Germany uh, years ago. But those are the only two European opera houses I've been in. Uh, so La Scala would have been great. I, I, I came close, but it, it didn't work. Um, and then the other thing I just missed, because uh, we were in Verona only for a few hours. <laughs> Which gave me a chance, you know, it was, this was one of those tours where if it's Tuesday, it must be mm-hmm. Verona, sure. you know. Sure. Uh, uh, and uh, so we got to walk around and I got to see Juliet's balcony, quote unquote, which, you know, I mean, they don't uh-huh. think that it was actually, you know, but, uh, but it, it is the type of balcony that would have been sure. written about. Um, and uh, I noticed posters for a a site-specific production of Romeo and Juliet uh, that moves from place to place in Verona, certainly, presumably, including Juliet's balcony. And uh, that really would have been something. So I I imagine that's, uh, you know, that they do that annually or or whatever and if you ever if you are a theater lover and you're ever in Verona be aware of that ahead of time and uh you know maybe that's something you can get to see they actually sell the tickets in a little um a little uh, kiosk in in the in the courtyard of where Juliet's balcony is uh so yeah that's it that sounds really great and I and I can only assume without even checking it out that they do it in English uh because you know uh but uh that yeah I mean that sounds like a really really fantastic thing that I that unfortunately Mm -hmm. missed well, it sounds like such a wonderful trip that you had. I was so spying on you on Facebook, posting those beautiful photos. Oh, it was just yeah. wonderful. I'm so happy you got a chance to do that. But we'll have to figure a way to get you back to see uh, some <laughs> some opera and some theater there. I mean, yes. it's the homeland. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Well, uh, well, La Scala and the Arena di Verona, which is another place that I I saw the site, but I I just missed. Uh, they had stopped doing operas like two weeks earlier there. Um, these places are so famous that you have to get tickets 
you know, months in advance, unless you are lucky enough to get some kind of a, a rush ticket or whatever. At La Scala, they have a, um, a whole bunch of partial view tickets. They call them partial view, but I think it's just that they're in the, in the very, very last row of hmm. uh, La Scala. And they have 140 of them available for each performance. So uh, it's not like it's 10, you know. Yeah. Um, and so you do have a possibility uh, to do that uh, if you're willing to take a chance, obviously. Michael, did you make it back in time for the Broadway Cares flea market last week? No, I was flying back as it happened, I believe. <laughs> so, Peter, how was the flea market? Oh, uh, uh, terrific. Um, I had a wonderful time standing at the Theatre World Awards table. Um, and uh, we did raise some money. We sold uh, some stuff. And what was really nice is that Victor Garber donated a lot of his personal effects that uh, oh. yeah, that was very, very gracious of him uh, to do that. Yes, granted, last year we gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award. But still, uh, we've given a few of those awards and nobody's really come up, uh, ponied up with anything. Uh, but it was really very nice of Victor to give photographs, photographs. Um, uh, signed photographs, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and they were a big hit. Um, but it, it's just, it, I, I think any theater fan really should go to this, um, basically because you'll meet people that you've read on Facebook or any other, all that chat or any of those wonderful sites that, um, Broadway world, any of those sites where you've gotten to know people by name, uh, you might very well meet them in person. And, uh, and that's a lot of fun. So it really is uh, old home day, uh, where you can certainly see old friends, people you haven't seen in years. Um, you know, uh, so many times I talk to couples who tell me they met, um, um, on gay pride day, um, on that Sunday, that last Sunday in June. And uh, that's where they met and that's where they started their relationship. I wonder if that's true of uh, indeed the the Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS um, day uh, in late September, the last <laughs> Sunday in September. I wonder, well, almost. Uh, I wonder if um, people have met there and forged relationships. I hope so. I hope so. But I think it's entirely possible. So, um, so next September, if you're single, show up. You might not be single much longer. Who knows? And it was a uh, great weather for last. It summer. was, yeah, wonderful yeah. weather. Yeah, it really was. I love this type of, this time of year because uh, you, you see a lot of old friends, and mm -hmm. uh, the weather mm -hmm. is perfect, and things like mm -hmm. that. And and I and I got to save the date in the mail. It's uh, I was very excited because the uh, the Theater World Awards uh, announced that the seventy sixth annual Theater World Ceremony is going to take place on Monday evening, June first, twenty twenty. 7 p.m. at Circle in the Square Theater, and that was a beautiful save the date. <laughs> and uh, it, since it's the 76th, you know I'm going to make a joke about 76 trombones. <laughs> I mean, that's inevitable. I was thinking um, 1776, you know. Ah, good point. I haven't thought about that. Yeah, very Is good. Is this the earliest that the, uh, that the date and the venue have been announced? Yeah. You bet. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> you and bet. And it, it'll be interesting because I, I had actually forgotten that Oklahoma is a limited run uh, and is scheduled to close in January. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what show, if any, is in Circle in the Square when you guys do the ceremony. Frankly, I hope they extend because they have a great joke that's uh, <laughs> very site-specific. Uh, so my heart will break if I can't use it. Uh, well, you Peter, can use it anyway. <laughs> uh, you know, well, Peter, if they're still doing Oklahoma, I really, really hope that you open up the Theater World Awards making biscuits. <laughs> 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 I shut off my oven in my apartment a long time ago. 
But throw an apron on and start doing your thing and start mixing together eggs and flour and all the other stuff that Mary Testa does. So, (laughs) all right. So let's move into. Oh, actually, before we do that, I want to remind our listeners that you can support us on Patreon.com/slash Broadway Radio, where we have all different levels of support there. And let's make sure that Broadway Radio makes it into 2020 and beyond. We've got an extraordinary support and wonderful uh, notes from from listeners all over the world and it means the world to us and and the support is really really part of the solution to getting us into 2020 and beyond so patreon.com slash radio first up in our review section peter and michael got to see height of the storm the height of the storm at manhattan theater club so peter why don't you get us started on that I liked it quite a bit. Um, it's a play that always keeps you guessing. It uh, Jonathan Price is an old man uh, who's uh, pretty feeble at this point, and um, and he may have dementia. He may have Alzheimer's. He may have all sorts of things that come with a great old age. And what makes the play most fascinating is that we never know if what he's thinking has actually happened, is actually happening. Um, and so it goes here, there, and everywhere. Uh, Eileen Atkins plays his wife, um, who may be dead. Um, is he reminiscing about her? Is she on the scene? I'm telling you, that's the the wonder of this play. I mean, um, Florian Zeller has really done a wonderful job of essentially, let's think of it as a film that's been cut up. And the film uh, specs have been thrown in the air and um, (laughs) they're put back together uh, in any order whatsoever, because what he's doing uh, is really establishing that when you get to this point in life and you can't remember things or you think you remember things, (laughs) who knows what's real? Who knows what isn't? So that's the wonder of the play. It keeps you guessing. And um, just as you say, oh, I get it. I know exactly what's happening. Yes, yes, that's it. Um, You say, oh, wait a minute, maybe I don't. Uh, Because there are adult children involved too. Um, We also hear about one daughter being the favorite daughter. Is she? Is she not? Um, Is this just uh, what one daughter wants to believe? Uh, You you never know. You never know. That's the wonder of this play. And I think it's... um, it's it's hard to say that it's great fun when you're talking about a situation like this, old age and uh, dementia or what have you. But um, <laughs> it 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 is something that does keep your interest. Now it's only eighty minutes long, so that's certainly um, part of the reason why it keeps your interest. It might not um, have uh, succeeded had it been a conventional two act play. I don't know if I should use the word conventional with two act play since we have so many 90 minute intermissionless plays. But anyway, um, the fact remains that, um, Florian Zeller, uh, knows always leave him wanting more. And that's what happens at the end of this play, because you really, uh, do want to know more about these characters to really make a decision on what you think really, really did happen. I'm sure a lot of people will come out saying, oh, no, no, I get it. I get it. I know exactly what happened. And perhaps you do. And perhaps you don't. Okay, Michael, what do you think? Well, I certainly wouldn't say I know exactly what happened. <laughs> but I did come up with the theory. Um, this is this play is by Florian Zeller, a French playwright, who I think is best known on these shores for two previous efforts, The Mother uh, which is a play that I did not see that was off Broadway uh, and it starred Isabelle Huppert. And then The Father, <laughs> which was on Broadway and starred Frank Langella. Um, in the Langella play, there again, you had someone who 
uh, obviously it becomes clear that he has dementia or Alzheimer's or whatever the exact term might be. And uh, that was the enigmatic nature of that play because uh, you had to keep readjusting as to what was actually happening or what he was hallucinating and what was real and what wasn't. And I found it fascinating. Uh, there again, um, that was a, a brief play. And if it had been longer, it might not have worked. But but for the length that it was, I thought it was really quite involving and riveting and very moving um same with the height of the storm uh it would be yeah it it would not in any way be a spoiler to to discuss the plot because nothing is is certain uh it does become i think the first thing you think is that perhaps the character played by jonathan price uh has died and so you think for a while that that's what's going on because they're talking about going through his uh, papers and his effects in the in the house where they live outside of Paris. Uh, but then the, then later, not too long later, someone says something else that makes you think that it might be his wife, uh, played by Eileen Atkins, who died. And so you're you're really not sure about it. Um, do keep an eye on the lighting. I, I was actually uh -huh. given I was given this tip beforehand by someone who had seen it and was trying to help me, <laughs> you know, in advance. Uh, the lighting by you, Van Stone, is very instructive, at least in giving you a clue as to when the perspective is shifting uh, and where we're shifting from one reality to another. So um, I will confess like that during the play uh, and until it was over, I, I was um, wondering which of these two people, if either had died and it did sort of distract me a, a little, I guess distract is the, is the right word because I was trying to find an answer cause I thought I needed to. Um, and then only afterwards did I think that I think maybe what this play is, is that it's showing us both scenarios, uh, you know, showing us some scenes where it's the wife who died and the, and the husband is still alive and reacting. And then other scenes where it's the opposite. Uh, I don't, I don't imagine that the playwright has made any statement about this. Uh, I, and I have not actually d had a chance to do the research, but I can't imagine that the playwright would have made a statement about it. Um, so until I hear otherwise, that's my interpretation <laughs> of the height of the storm. Uh, but either way, it's uh, it's an incredible privilege to see artists of the caliber of Jonathan Price and Eileen Atkins uh, on stage. Uh, I have seen both of them in several things, but I would say not as not as often as I would like. Um, they are they're really treasures of the theater, uh, and plus uh, the rest of the cast, you know, was wonderful as well. Lucy Kohu, Amanda Drew, James Hillier, and Lisa O'Hare, uh, directed by Jonathan Kent. And by the way, the translation uh, of the play from the original French was by Christopher Hampton, who, of course, is a great playwright in his own right. So I, I applaud the Manhattan Theatre Club for producing this play and giving us the opportunity to see these great artists in uh, a really, really intriguing and engaging and uh, very moving play by Jonathan Kent. 
um, uh, by, uh, by, by Florian Zeller. Excuse me. I'm very embarrassed I didn't say anything about Eileen Atkins. Uh, and the fact remains that she is an extraordinary performer because she's the greatest type of actress who seems like she's not acting at all. Yes. Uh, there's no indication. There's no and none of that stuff. I mean, she just speaks. She's in the character. She speaks the character. And that's what makes her extraordinary. So and it's just so wonderful because, you know, we haven't seen her for a while um, in, in, in a role that really is pungent as the period we haven't seen her. So it's very nice to have her back where she belongs. Yes, and actually, on that note, uh, I believe the very first time I became aware of her was rather late in Lettuce and Lovage. Uh-huh. And that was quite a few years ago, mm-hmm. and she was not a young woman then. Mm-hmm. I, I have not looked up her age, but whatever it is, she's amazing. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's one of those master class situations. Really, it really is. I, I, would, I would go if only for her. But also, Jonathan Price has always been one of my favorites. So it, it, this really must be seen, I would say. Okay, so that's the height of the storm. It's Manhattan Theater Club. It's uh, playing extended through November 24th, so you have a a few weeks to catch up with it, about six weeks or so, so please do. Peter, you were down in the D.C. area where you stopped to see Henry IV Part One at the Folger Shakespeare Library, so tell us about this. Well, um, I came late to Folger. I only went for the first time last year, and I made it a, a vow that I would go more often. And um, so here I was uh, seeing Henry the Fourth, Part One, and um, it's an extraordinarily good production. Um, and Rosa Joshi, who directed, really treated it as if it were a masterpiece in the best sense of the word. Um, she really had a sense of importance about it that was really quite wonderful. But of course, she had a terrific cast too. But there were so many subtleties to this acting that um, things occurred to me that never occurred to me before. I mean, I've seen six productions of um, Henry IV Part One, only one production of Henry IV Part Two. That's always <laughs> the toughest one to see. Yeah. Uh, it was, if, uh, frankly, out of the 37 Shakespeare plays, uh, or 38, 39, however you want to count them, um, Henry IV Part Two was one that took me the longest to see. And ironically enough, it was in Washington, D.C., but at the Shakespeare Theater. Anyway, here's King Henry IV played by Peter Crook wonderfully. Um, This guy is still in the height of his powers. And of course, like so many fathers with their sons, he's disappointed in the son. And uh, because the son is running around with false step. What was so great about seeing uh, Prince Hal wonderfully played by Avery Witted, something occurred to me that never occurred to me before. And that is that when you're a prince of a king, you you lead a type of life where you just don't understand about the real world. You are sheltered from the real world. And that was one of the reasons why Prince Hal was interested in Falstaff, who has seen the world, who has been around. And so I can really understand why he would be attracted to this, you should pardon the expression, bad boy. And uh, Falstaff is, of course, a bad boy in so many ways. He certainly uh, likes to drink. Um, he was played by Edward Jarrow in a terrific performance, just wonderful. And that has a lot to do with the fact that he showed us where Falstaff had come from. Don't forget, he's Sir John Falstaff, or is he? You know, this guy lies like crazy, so he might not be a Sir. He might have aggrandized himself. So he keeps you guessing there, which is really quite wonderful. But more to the point, this is a guy who's been around a long time, and now he's starting to feel it. We have to remember that it's not going to be that long before he does die, uh, which we hear about in Henry V. And, um, 
so seeing him starting to decline uh, is is something that's really important to this character and is something that really uh, Edward Jero did so spectacularly well, spectacularly well. Um, He's he's very, very funny. And what's wonderful about this play, it doesn't take long for Shakespeare to get comic relief in. In the second scene, here comes Falstaff, and you get the comic relief really quite early after the opening scene where uh, King Henry IV shows that he has plenty of metal, um, M-E-T-T-L-E. There's certainly metal on his head, too, in this crown, uh, the hollow crown. But... um, but eventually you do get the conflict between father and son. They do meet up and they do have that conflict. And we do see the beginnings of the greatness that Henry V will be. And it's wonderful how Avery Witted really conveyed that as well. We saw him grow from this innocent because, again, if you're a prince and you're coddled, you're innocent. Um, you don't know the way the real world works. So, um, so that was terrific. I also have to give a tremendous shout out, shout out to Tyler Fauntleroy, who played Hotspur. Uh, whoa, uh, not just hot, red hot, white hot. Tremendous, um, tremendous performance by Tyler Fauntleroy, who really, really got the fire in this character and made it um, extraordinarily um, effective. So um, it runs till October 13th. And uh, if you're in the neighborhood, you must go because as I say, production of Henry IV part two, don't grow on trees, but not the Henry the fourth part one. And if you're a completist who wants to see all of Shakespeare's plays, and I hope you are, and you haven't caught Henry the fourth part one, now's the time. Now's the time. Oh, um, also, also quite wonderful is Kate Eastwood Norris's Mistress Quickly. Um, <clears throat> wonderful in the scene where uh, <laughs> she improvised a bit. Uh, I, I'm sure that um, Shakespeare didn't write, hey, hey, hey. But um, when there's a fight breaking out <laughs> in the tavern, the way she went, hey, 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 you know, like, you got to stop that right now was really quite wonderful. So, um, yes, uh, the Folger remains on my radar, and I hope to get there more often, not just once a year. But um, really, I am so impressed with the way they do such fine work on a relatively small space. Um, they, uh, <laughs> I, I also love a tiny moment that I thought was really terrific. There's Henry IV in the first scene sitting on a throne. Okay. The next scene, as I say, is Falstaff. So Falstaff comes in and tips over the throne and it becomes a table on which he's going to be um, drinking, leaning against and drinking. And it was really, of course, you know, you can use a, a set piece in so many ways, but it also conveyed the subtext of he has no respect for the throne. And that's what I really liked. It, that, this is what makes this production so wonderful. There are little details like that that make you start thinking in a way that you haven't thought. Well, at least I haven't thought before. Maybe you've figured all this out before. But, um, but I really – I have never in the six times I've gone to see Henry IV uh, have come away from it feeling so enriched as I did with this production. Well, I've been lucky enough to see several shows at the Folger, and I would also say that uh, I remark also that it's a physically beautiful theater in itself. Oh, yeah. And then also they uh, – I forget – I know they have memorabilia there. Do they have um, – is it a permanent uh, display of the first folio? I know they had it. I don't know if it's permanent. I did uh, walk around um, the uh, room where they have a lot of stuff, and I, I have to say I didn't see it. But I didn't really do a tremendous um, uh, detailed search of the place. So, But um, at least at one point they did have the first folio, a first folio. Yes, Okay, so uh, 
That is Henry the Fourth, Part One, <clears throat> like the uh, Star Wars. You know, <laughs> nine parts there <laughs> at the Folger Theater in Washington D.C. It's uh, through October thirteenth. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, the Folger Theater website is just chock full of really, really interesting information about Shakespeare and helps people break down the. T- I, I have I have a very difficult time with Shakespeare, so I really try to do a lot of research whenever I see a show before I go in. So because I just can't process it the way that I I should, and and this Folger Theater website is really awesome to help break down the text and help me understand it. So if you mm-hmm. along uh, have the same type of issues that I have, get over to their website. Michael, uh, after coming back from Italy, you uh, made your way down to Catfish Row in Charleston, South Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, or, or or up to Lincoln Center. I'm not sure which it was. So, But you got to see a production of Porgy and Bess. So tell us about the Metropolitan Opera production of Porgy and Bess. Yes, I saw, I believe, what, the second performance of this new production of one of the great masterworks of mm-hmm. human achievement, <laughs> uh, Porgy and Bess, music by George Gershwin, uh, libretto by DuBose Hayward, DuBose and Dorothy Hayward, and Ira Gershwin. Uh, this production is directed by James Robinson uh, and conducted by D- David Robert. Right. Directed by James Robinson and conducted by David Robertson. And lots of uh, theater people on the production staff, set designer Michael Yergin, costume designer Catherine Zuber, lighting by Donald Holder. Uh, projection designs uh, by Luke Halls, and, and there, there's some really wonderful projections in it. Choreography by Camille Brown, Camille A. Brown, and uh, fight director David Leong. Uh, this... Uh, it, as I said, is a masterpiece. One of the um, major issues in Porgy and Bess is that it's really, really, really long. Uh, and I don't think there's even what's considered an authoritative edition, uh, authoritative yeah. edition uh, of it, because uh, because from the beginning, um, uh, it was originally thought that it maybe uh, was going to be premiered at the Metropolitan Opera in the 30s, -hmm. but that didn't happen for lots of logistical reasons, and it wound up opening on Broadway at what was then the Alvin Theater. And um, uh, an uncut performance, well, it's hard to say how long it would be because depending on how many intermissions you would put in, but, but an uncut performance of of this work with no intermission, I would say, honestly, would probably be at least three and a half, uh, maybe four hours. And it's just, you know, it, it's it's just um, considered unperformable in, in its complete length for the most part. So uh, cuts were made from the first production. And then various different cuts have been made over the years. And plus there have been uh, um, adaptations that have cut out most of the sung dialogue in the in the piece and turned it into more of a musical than an opera uh and there have just just every possible uh decision has been made as far as what to perform and what to cut but uh the one one of the major uh selling points uh, and one of the major uh 
positive things I have to say about this production is that whoever decided what to cut made very, very, very intelligent decisions. There was almost nothing that I really missed. And um, that said, uh, they still have, uh, I don't want to say lied, but uh, been a little dishonest about the running time because what it says in my program is uh, 8 o'clock to 11.15, but it was actually over more like 1140. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that's a, you know, that's a significant difference. And, you know, for people who are trying to plan ahead. So just be aware of that, that it's going to be more like, uh, well, more like 340 than, uh, than 315. Um, this, uh, uh, you know, that you would want to see this and hear it, if only to hear the magnificent score in the absolutely gorgeous orchestrations of George Gershwin played by the Met Orchestra, which is world class, needless to say, and um, sung by a huge chorus that has been almost entirely jobbed in because it's it's completely african-american or or at any rate black chorus uh in addition to all of the the principals who are also african-american or or at least black um except for a, a very few roles uh uh Really, in this production, only one major speaking role that is played by a white actor. Uh, the, one of the brilliant conceits of this opera is that the uh, the African Americans sing at all times, including all of the dialogue and the beautiful arias and duets and ensemble pieces, whereas the f- few uh, white people who represent the you know the uh, the um, the the oppressive class at the time uh, in in the South in the 20s or 30s, uh, they come on and, and make trouble. Uh, so uh, and by the way, uh, the detective in this production, uh, who, who's the, the one major speaking role, was played by an actor named Grant Neal. And I have to give him a tremendous amount of credit for being able to deliver dialogue unamplified on wow. the metropolitan opera stage and making every single word understood. Wow. Uh, if if he had given the same performance on a Broadway stage, you would have said it was exaggerated. Uh-huh. Uh, but for the Met, he did exactly what he needed to do, and he really, really deserves a lot of credit for that. But uh, also, I mean, and primarily the um, the – the leads in this production are, are just superb. Eric Owens is Porgy uh, and Angel Blue as Bess and Alfred Walker as Crown. Uh, a Clara is a woman named Golda Schultz, uh, <laughs> whom I had never heard of, but she was quite wonderful. Sport and Life is Frederick Ballantyne. And Jake is um, is an artist that I have been previously aware of aware of uh, with the wonderful name of Ryan Speedo Green. And yes, Speedo is spelled just like the swimsuit. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> uh, but he was, oh, and Latanya Moore as uh, Serena, who gets to sing that incredible My Man's Gone Now, one of the one of the most magnificent pieces of music ever written for the musical theater. Sorry about my uh, this um, siren outside on Ninth Avenue, but I'm just going to keep going here. Uh-huh. Uh, uh 
this production, I, I do have to say, is a little disappointing to me in the sense that it's um, that the style of it is uh, very different from the past, uh, the the one previous Met production, which uh, I guess was in the 80s. Um, uh, that one was much, much more uh, photorealistic, I would say, and uh, more in terms of the photos I've seen of the original Broadway production in terms of a, uh, a very photorealistic recreation of the main set, which is a, a courtyard in Catfish Row uh, in South Carolina. Uh, this one is much more stylized. It, it has a huge... A huge, huge, huge revolve. Basically, the entire, almost the entire, the entirety of the Met Opera stage. Uh, this structure that keeps revolving to show us um, uh, Catfish Row uh, uh, from various perspectives. And there's one scene that's set uh, elsewhere on an island, Kittywa Island, when uh, when the uh, the cast go the the company goes to to have a little holiday on Kittywa Island and that's the setting for it ain't necessarily so uh, that setting I thought was also disappointing because it, it just looked like a I don't know it looked like a pier or a wharf somewhere it didn't look uh, very sylvan it didn't look like an island or anything like that so um, if you are looking for a photorealistic production this this is not uh, what you're going to get but. Um, Porgy and Bess is such a masterwork that it has to be seen, I, I think, whenever it's done, and especially with the, the kind of the kind of forces that the Met has to offer in terms of chorus and orchestra and, and these fabulous, magnificent lead singers. So um, I would definitely try to go. Uh, you know, there are performances – spaced out at various uh various intervals throughout the uh throughout the season um and it was uh by the way absolutely packed when i went i i i was sitting in a box so i could look around and see practically the entire audience and i ah i didn't see a single um empty seat uh two friends of mine who went and were seated in the back did see two empty seats and then they moved up <laughs> mm. so uh but i did not so i stayed where i was and i just uh, i just really really loved it um parenthetically um as uh, uh you may have discussed on the podcast while i was away the film of porgy and bess the incredibly rare film uh was screened last week uh, at the Walter Reed Theater, in a, apparently, it's so rare that the only print they could find, yes, was a was a print from I think Finland or Norway with with subtitles and uh, you know in in not great condition. And then I told that another screening of that print had been scheduled, and that has been canceled because the rights involving that movie just continue to be a tremendous, tremendous issue. Um, it seems like, um, I mean, it's incredible. It's really a, a very appalling and sad situation that this film of this great masterwork, uh, it's a problematic film, but it stars, oh, it, sure it stars, oh yeah, it really, really is. But it stars Sidney Poitier, Dorothy Dandridge, Sammy Davis Jr., Pearl Bailey, Diane Carroll, Brock Peters. I mean, if only from a historical perspective, it deserves to be seen. And it does have 
uh, many wonderful moments. I think even though there are play, uh, sections of it that just don't work at all. So I, I hope there's a happy ending to that. Uh, I'll never forget. I'm, I'm sure I told this story before that years ago I was in a, a drugstore in L.A. and uh, I was with a friend and I noticed this fellow walk in and it was it was Brock Peters. Um, mm-hmm. Who also, of course, is is known uh, very well known as the uh, the man who's on trial. Uh, Tom Robbins is that his name in the uh, in the film of To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, and he plays Crown in the movie of Porgy and Bess. He's also in Carmen Jones, and he was uh, uh, a great Broadway star for Lost in the Stars and other and other shows. But anyway, I I saw him come into that. <laughs> that drugstore and I went up to him and introduced myself and talked about several things but I did ask him about Porgy and Bess which at the time was uh, completely inaccessible you could not see it anywhere and he said um, he said well he said all I can say is I hope that they you know restore it and get it out there before I die and that did not happen because he died a few years later and I'm very sorry that he never got to see that happen and I don't know if any of us ever will uh, it's it's a really, really sad situation, and I wish the Gershwin estate or the Goldwyn Company, which I believe still mm-hmm. owns the rights, uh, would step up and and spend whatever money is necessary to restore it. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sure it wouldn't be cheap, but when you think of it as a, you know, in terms of the budgets that these film major film companies have it, it, it it's a relative pittance certainly in terms of the amount you would spend to make a new movie um so for cinematic history purposes i i really hope that they do that but in the meantime um you have a relatively rare opportunity to see a, a beautiful production of porgy and bess at the metropolitan opera a few quick questions for you michael um, yes I don't think you made any reference to the 2012 production on Broadway with uh, Audra and Norm. Oh, yeah. I despised it. <laughs> <laughs> and I have uh, that in the archive on January 23rd, 2012. If anybody wants to go back and listen to Michael's comments about that. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, I, 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 know that, I knew that you didn't like it much. Yeah, Steve Sondheim and I uh, were not. <laughs> You're on first name basis with Mr. Sondheim. Good, excellent. Um, and uh, you know, there was have been talk in the last uh, month or so about a remake of The Princess Bride, which is a perfect film, and they shouldn't remake it. Instead of remaking The Princess Bride, maybe they should remake Porgy and Bess. Yeah, you know there was a uh, TV production of oh, yeah. the the uh, gl- uh, Glindborn right. uh, production that was directed by Trevor Nunn, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, years ago, and actually, it's pretty good except for one tremendous flaw. They uh, they had made an audio recording of the production first, and then uh, did this TV production as an afterthought with using the uh that recording oh. as you know mm-hmm. as uh, with, the with the right with the cast lip syncing and it it just wasn't engineered for that and so it sounds very strange with a lot of uh you know reverb and stuff so so that really undercut uh something that might have been really wonderful there was also a tv um uh, production, a TV presentation of it. Uh, the, I would think it was the last time that City Opera did it quite a few years ago. Uh, 
And that's the best video version of it that I've ever seen. I, I somehow got a copy of it. it. It was never commercially released, but I think um, that it that if you look for it, you might find it available one way or another. Uh, and that, I would say, uh, uh, as we speak, is the best way to experience a video of Porky and Bess. All right. Uh, also, oh, one last thing, Peter. Yeah. I, I still thank Peter because a few uh, years ago, uh, yeah, he knows what I'm going to say. I do know what you're going to say. I was talking about how the movie is so inaccessible, and he said, oh, I saw uh, a copy of it in um, in a store in Newark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, please, please get it for me. And he did. Uh, and it's it's a you know, it's a very, very poor bootleg mm-hmm. print, but it's still, you know, it's still something uh, poor game. and it doesn't it's a it's a cut version it doesn't have um my man's gone now and there are a few other sections of it that are cut but uh but it is you know it, that is out there so it's something you could see to at least get an idea of what we're talking about and you might not be pleased by what you see because i have never seen a movie that <laughs> that eliminates close-ups as much as this one. There's one of Sammy Davis Jr. that's reason, but it, essentially it's as if they put a camera in the back of a house um, and that's it. Uh, I, it's amazing to me how the, um, it's Otto Preminger, right? Yes, and that's one of, I agree, that's one of the major, major flaws of the movie and it's so weird because Porgy and Bess, uh, that film was five years after Carmen Jones mm-hmm. by the same director mm-hmm. and with a lot of the same actors and that movie is nothing like like that. Right. There are lots of close-ups and, and, and cuts and camera movement in Carmen Jones and almost none in Porgy and Bess. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one reason why, uh, you know, that's one mark against it and maybe one reason why the, the Gershwin estate hated it so much. And I agree. Uh, had, a, had a large uh, part in keeping it suppressed all these years. I agree. Okay. So that is uh, Porgy and Bess up at the Metropolitan Opera. As I have mentioned before, the Metropolitan Opera website is amazing. So please get over there uh, to the Metropolitan Opera website to find out more information about this uh, production. Peter, you got over to the Park Avenue Armory to see Antigone. So tell us about Antigone. Well, this is uh, Antigone in Japanese, and it's done by a Japanese company. And... um, so there are super titles, of course, but um, and the translation is by Shigete Yaganuma, and um, it's a, it's a free and easy translation. I don't think it's um, terrifically um, faithful to um, what Sophocles wrote, although those many <laughs> centuries ago. So uh, Satoshi Bungagi is the director, and frankly, I found it a little on the pretentious side. For one thing, um, it takes place in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And when you enter the armory, you will see um, about two dozen people walking around in the water. And they're going to be walking around that water all night long. And all night long is um, about an hour and 45 minutes. And that's a long time to uh, be walking around the water. Why are they walking around the water? Damn if I know. Uh, Maybe there's a metaphor I missed. I don't know. Um, But the thing is, what we have to do is judge us on the terms of Japanese theater. And Japanese theater, I've I've been to the Kabuki in Tokyo and uh, a few other other um, shows in Osaka. And I know the Japanese theater relies on 
um, <laughs> slowness, <laughs> um, they do take their time to make their points. And I guess the point of that is to make us think about what's going on. And um, on that level, it is successful. But by Western standards and uh, through our Western eyes, I do think that um, it's going to be a bit um, pokey for anybody who does go. But um, the whole thing with the water and all that, I just found tremendously uh, pretentious and um, a director imposing a concept that doesn't need to be imposed on it. Again, maybe I'm uh, clueless about this. Maybe somebody's like, are you crazy? Didn't You didn't get the water filled with the water? What's the matter with you? It's very possible somebody will say that to me. But at this point, I am rather clueless about it. But I am impressed, at least, that this company came over with all these people. And um, it's very dramatic, by the way, when uh, because certainly Japanese theater relies a lot on uh, intense drumming and um, the the important parts of the play where things really get uh, tough for Antigone, and they do, um, of course. Uh, there's a lot of drumming that um, is, is effective. So, um, so if you've had experience with Japanese theater, you know what you're getting into. If you haven't, I think you're going to find it um, a little slow for your taste. But uh, all things considered, it is a curiosity, and we're very grateful to have the chance to see Japanese theater um, done by Japanese people uh, who uh, imported it, so that's really a very good thing. And uh, but mm, yeah, <laughs> I guess it's better in theory than in practice. Peter, do you know if uh, is this a, a rental or is somebody curating what's happening at the Park Avenue Armory? Oh, they. Uh, I imagine uh, it's the latter because um, they do have um, a lot of imports here, there, and everywhere, and I do think that. Uh, it's uh, a situation where they're looking for um, to bring in companies that we don't usually get a chance to see. So I don't know who's in charge there, but uh, whoever is, um, is is working hard to keep the place booked. And uh, a lot of attractions are coming up in the future, and I'm sure that um, they will be of more than moderate interest. Uh, this only runs, by the way, till October 6th. So if you're going to get there and see the 18 thousand gallon pool of water um so uh you will uh, have to get there fast but um let me also say I, I forgot to mention this there are a lot of shadows that are very effective and again that's a style of japanese theater that they really like very much so i i really do believe that you will get um sort of like a mini course in what uh, japanese theater is like uh by going to this production great so uh, that is Antigone at the Park Avenue Armory through October 6th, as Peter mentioned, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Michael, you got over to the Argyle Theater in Babylon, New York, on, the, on Long Island to see the Full Monty. Did they have an 18,000-gallon pool of water? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, it was, uh, I would say, a, 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 um, you know, it wasn't a particularly elaborate production but that show's not about the sets no. it's about yeah. the really really great music and lyrics by david yasbeck and the mm -hmm. wonderful book by terence mcnally who did a magnificent job i think of americanizing and adapting mm -hmm. uh the story from the original film which was set in england uh and this is about a bunch of guys um in uh steel workers in buffalo who are out of work because the you know hard times and uh so they're really in financial straits and they and they don't 
they don't have anywhere to turn really and they all need money for various reasons and so um they have an idea uh, because uh, this strip show comes through town, this male strip show that all the women are going gaga over and uh, paying big bucks to go see. And so the light bulb comes on uh, uh, over the head of, of this one fellow um, – uh, Jerry Lakowski, played by Eddie Egan in this production, that, you know, why don't these guys do that themselves and raise some quick money that way? Uh, so that's what they do. And it's uh, it's it's just a really wonderful show about people uh, moving out of their comfort zone and, and, and uh, doing what they have to do in order to get along. Uh, I've always thought that one of the strengths of this show is that um, – the main motivation that Jerry has is that he uh, he's he's divorced or separated from his wife and uh, they have a, a kid, uh, you know, a son who's about, I don't know, maybe like 12 or so. Um, and Jerry wants money because primarily because he, uh, you know, he needs it to uh, continue to support his son and provide for him. Uh, so there's that emotion uh you know that that really strong emotion that's that's at the that's at the base of this uh it's not like these guys are just doing this because you know for fun or for kicks or whatever they they all they really um are doing something that they would not normally ever enter their you know it would never enter their minds to do this but uh they just go beyond and they and they really strive and they and they ultimately um are a huge success. So it's, uh, this production is directed by Evan Pappas, uh, choreo- choreographed, um, and assist associate director, associate directed by someone named U- Eugenio Contenti. And, um, uh, lots of applause for him because, um, one of the essential things in the full Monty is it's really about, this these this bunch of regular guys um you know they're not actory they're not they're not musical theater guys they're just a bunch of mostly straight guys <laughs> living in this small you know well well not a small town but a but this depressed town with with the, with with this with economic deprivations because the because the place where they work is just on hard times and everybody's being laid off and um and David Yazbek's songs really reflect that so wonderfully they uh, they they sound like you know the, what these what these guys would be how they would be expressing themselves uh and that that's very difficult to do and it's also hard to choreograph uh for a story like that i think but but all of that was done very well here um the other uh performers the entire cast was was wonderful but uh, let me just single out um uh the the guys at the center of the story and then also a few of the other people uh uh, Buddy Kino Walsh, the stripper at the beginning, was played by David Borum. Uh, young Nathan, uh, Jerry's son, just really wonderfully played by Braden Bratty. Uh, and, you know, there again, it, it's, you know, we don't always come across um, young actors like that who can seem very natural and, and at home on stage, but he certainly j- did. Um, Hunter Brown played Ethan Gerard. Uh, Milton Craig Neely as Noah oh. Horse. You know him? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as Noah 
uh, quote unquote horse T Simmons, who just the audience just loved him. And I would say he was a worthy, worthy, worthy successor to Andre de Shields, who created the role on Broadway. Um, uh, uh, Jeanette Burmeister, the Kathleen Freeman role, uh, was brilliantly played by Christine Zbornik, uh-huh. uh, who uh, was a forbidden Broadway veteran, among mm-hmm. other things. Mm-hmm. And and one of the best, best performances – oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Malcolm McGregor uh, was Pat Moran. And uh, and he and uh, Hunter Brown as Ethan Gerard gave a, a, a just a beautiful account of this uh, blossoming – romantic relationship between those two guys that's the uh the one uh little i would say gay element in this story that um was uh, i i believe that's in this the movie as well uh, uh if if maybe not focused on as much but um i'm i'm glad that Terrence McNally handled that so well and and the song that um David Yazbek wrote for them is is really beautiful as well, uh, but yes, uh, Christine Zabornik as Jeanette was was hilarious. Uh, I have not seen her on stage in quite some time, and she just was. Uh, from the moment I heard she was cast as Jeanette, I said, "Well, that is perfect casting." Um, and then, uh, perhaps the best one in the whole show uh, for me was. Max Wilcott, who played Dave Bukatinsky. This was the role originally played by John Ellis and Conley. And there again, he was so, so natural on stage. You you would think he really was this person. Mm. It was just a, a complete, uh, absolutely beautiful, thoroughly etched out uh, characterization. Uh, so I'm going to have to keep my eye out for him in future shows. He was really, really, really wonderful. And um, overall, you know, I have not seen a bad show yet at the Argyle. Uh, they continue to do really wonderful stuff. Next up is um, something I'm sure many, many of us will be interested in. Uh, it's a show that they are calling Miracle on 34th Street. Uh, so we can see that. And I, uh, you know, I am assuming it's Here's Love. And it we'll is see Here's what, Love. Yeah. Well, and so we'll see what they what they do with it. Um, I don't know if they're – Peter, do you know, other than the change of title, um, do you know if there have been any revisions? Not that I've ever heard that there have been revisions. Yeah. And I have I have seen it under that title, Miracle of 34th Street. But uh, that was at a benefit uh, performance. Um, I remember Jim Brochu playing uh, Chris Kringle. And um, it was at uh, St. Luke's. And uh, it was business as usual. I'm old enough to have seen the original Here's Love at the Schubert uh, back in 1964. And um, <laughs> it's just, you know, you watch that movie and you see so many opportunities for <laughs> songs and they're not in the show yes um so anyway um i guess i'm not doing a good job of helping them sell um miracle on 34th street but of course for those of us who are interested in seeing any and all broadway musicals um especially from the golden age it's certainly uh, worth seeing because even though many theaters do seem to do it at christmas time knowing that that title will help and knowing that uh, people know the story and they'll um, enjoy seeing the story and there are three terrific songs in it um but mm. by saying there are three terrific songs the implication of the other ones aren't as good and also aside from i mean i completely agree with everything you just said but aside from um the fact of the title change you know helping in terms of familiarity uh also i would say one of the worst things about here's love is that horribly generic title 
which, which means nothing. You know, here's love. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I, I have to say that um, it is my perception that um, when I say there are three terrific songs, one of them is Here's Love. So um, I like that very much indeed. Oh, yeah, but uh, not for the title of the show. <laughs> what's really interesting to me is that that is a title that really suggests to me the famous cliche of musicals having an exclamation point, And it doesn't. <laughs> However, the logo originally were essentially two exclamation points um, looking a lot like hearts as well. Yes. Um, one uh, straight up, one upside down. And um, so, no, uh, I, I think Here's Love is a, an excellent title for a musical, frankly. So, um, oh, really? Feet. Yeah, oh, I do. I think it's, well, sure, it's it's very inviting. Here's Love, gee. Um, I you just know, think it's, so, it's so open-ended, though. It's so generic. It, oh, I don't know. Okay. I suppose. Just, just I, 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 I'll agree with you that it, it, it doesn't immediately say, oh, that must be the musical of Miracle on 34th Street. I'll grant you that. Yes. Um, you know, the way that um, so many, uh, like Holly Go Lightly, which was the original title of Breakfast at Tiffany's, let you know that it was a musical version of Breakfast at Tiffany's. So um, I agree with you that it doesn't uh, do that. But um, given the fact that um, Here's Love may very well be the best um, song in the score, then indeed uh, it's full of topical references at the time. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor is mentioned as being a great beauty in essence. They don't stress their beauty, they stress their marriages, frankly, in the title song. And the other other thing too is very sad. The show opened on October third, and um, they had to change the lyric after November twenty second. Right, because we're talking about nineteen sixty three. Because there was a reference to JFK, which they changed to CIA, um, which indeed um, didn't mean nearly as much um, because it was uh, about the fact that Kennedy had had issues with the United States Steel. There was a big to do about that mm. in nineteen sixty three, and so. But and um, so. Until recently, the only surviving uh, person in that song was Fidel Castro, but even he's gone now. So, uh, so I I guess they'll keep it in '63 um, to get those um, topical references in. I don't imagine that uh, there'll be um, any fooling around because the Meredith Wilson estate, I'm told, is very tough, and that's why you even see every production of The Music Man as Meredith Wilson's The Music Man. Mm. You know, and it's not as if he was Rogers and Hammerstein or you know Lerner and Lowe even i mean you know um he he did four musicals um one of which closed out of town and it, there was a large diminishing returns because the music man ran substantially longer than unsinkable molly brown which ran longer than here's love which ran longer than um 1491 which is closed on the road a musical about columbus so um so they're very strict so i don't know what's going to go on there i imagine they're going to keep it in 63 okay so that is the uh, Full Monty at Argyle, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And uh, Argyle keeps on putting on great shows. Let's uh, hear it for them. So, Peter, you got over to Theater Road to see Caesar and Cleopatra. So tell us about Caesar and Cleopatra. Well, um, David Stoller started doing uh, readings of um, Shaw plays. And even though it's called the Gingold Group, because he was very um, fond and friendly with Hermione Gingold, and he named it in um, in her honor, uh, what he's really done is um, do readings of anything he can find by George Bernard Shaw. But as time has gone on, they've expanded. And it's really quite nice how we're now seeing full productions. Um, he did a Heartbreak House that was terrific um, some time ago. And now he's doing Caesar and Cleopatra. And it's a wonderful production. Um, and more to the point, 
I, I was reminded of the fact that there is a Pygmalion aspect to this one, too. And that is the fact that um, Caesar here, of course, is a, a, an established uh, ruler. Uh, he's a big shot, needless to say. And Cleopatra is queen of Egypt, but uh, she's having trouble because her brother Ptolemy is uh, interested in being king of Egypt. And they're, and they're worrying about this. And frankly, Caesar does think that Cleopatra is not up to the job, but that she can be up to the job. So just as Henry Higgins uh, educates Eliza, so too does um, Caesar educate Cleopatra in what it takes to be a ruler. So that's a very, very potent and pungent premise. Yeah, and um, however historically accurate, um, we don't know. Great idea to get Robert Cuccioli as Caesar, because um, he really has that uh, majesty and power within him. Uh, we also have to commend Teresa Avia Lim, who um, has to make the real journey. I mean, after all, Caesar doesn't change very much, uh, as I say, because he's an established presence. But um, Cleopatra has to, just as Eliza does in, in My Fair Lady and uh, Pygmalion. So Teresa Avia Lim goes from this uh, silly person who you wouldn't think could, could manage a checkbook, let alone a country. And um, grows to be what Caesar wants her to be. Uh, she also has um, a um, a servant who isn't a servant at all, and her name is Fatata Tita. And Fatata Tita uh, learned early on in the game that Cleopatra was not up to the job, and so she essentially takes over and is essentially the queen. In in many instances, she gives advice, which really turns out to be more directives than advice. And um, if if you recall the uh, most recent production of Roger and Hammerstein, Cinderella, you recall Peter Bartlett being in charge of the prince because he's used to it. I mean, the, the, the prince was a kid, and he was the father figure, you know, growing up. So that's what we have here too. And Brenda Braxton, terrific as Fatata Tita, you know. Really really commanding, you know, takes no guff and uh, doesn't entertain any of that and certainly is not happy when Caesar shows up on the scene and essentially is taking over her role. So um, now we think of Shaw as being lengthy, you know, I mean, even Man and Superman without Don Juan in Hell uh, takes a while. This is a very speedy production and very efficient, um, two hours, that's it. You know, so um, for those of you who fear that you're going to be in the theater now and forever, no, you're not no you're not indeed um it's it you're going to feel like you were there for 10 minutes which is one of the greatest compliments you can ever give any director and it's certainly a compliment that must be given to david staller in this terrific production let me also say that um <laughs> it's impossible for a musical theater fan to see caesar and Cla uh, cleopatra without thinking of her first roman the 1968 musical version of it and you know so many of our listeners have heard me complain from time to time about shows that have anachronistic sounds and usually i, I bring that up in terms of like rock music that um for example i don't caught into spring awakening because the music doesn't sound like 1890 when the show was supposed to take place it's rock music of today. If, if Spring Awakening were updated, I'm not saying it can be, but if it were, I would have no problem with the score. My issue is not with the music itself. It's with the music is like in 1890. Well, you know, it's not just rock music that did that uh, or does that. Um, <clears throat> Irvin Drake, who wrote um, C Caesar and Cleopatra musical, Her First Roman, 
um, had tremendously anachronistic music. They sound like nightclub songs. They're not bad songs. Leslie Uggam sang them in the original production. Richard Kiley was, uh, was Caesar. And um, they're not bad songs. They just don't sound right for the era. So, um, so for those of you who are so tired of me complaining about anachronistic uh, music, I have to say that a song... Uh, a score from the Golden Age, um, her first Roman, which lasted all of 17 performances at the Lunfontaine, uh, was the first really musical I ever ran into to commit the sin of sounding anachronistic. So, uh, so when you go to Caesar and Cleopatra, you are spared the score that was written for her first Roman, and uh, be glad of that. And that was, um, was that not a score that was recorded very belatedly? In fact, 25 years later, yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Atlantic Records had the uh, rights to the cast album, and with 17 performances, they weren't uh, ponying up to the plate to make an album. So, um, so under those circumstances, yes, we did have to wait. And Robert McGarity, who uh, started his own label, decided to get everybody back together. He couldn't get Claudia McNeil, who played for Tata because she was very ill. She died very... I, 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 I don't even think she made it days after the recording session. I could be wrong about that, but it was very quickly thereafter that she died. And uh, the euphemism used is uh, in the liner notes is that she wasn't up to it. Um, but they did get Kylie and Uggams to come back, which really is something because, you know, a lot of people who were involved with failures, um, and again, this was no fault of theirs. He was a great Caesar. She was a great Cleopatra uh, in the scenes where there was Shaw dialogue, uh, which was the best part of the show, of course. Um, to get them to come back and agree to do it, um, a lot of people wouldn't have. And it's very nice that they did. So it's a semi-original cast album, and at least you know the people you really want to have on there are there. So um, so it's uh, it's an enjoyable album for its own sake, you know. <laughs> but you have to forget that you're dealing with uh, ancient Egypt and Caesar and Cleopatra. Peter, one more question. Have you ever seen the 1945 film of Caesar and Cleopatra? With Claude Rains and... Um, Vivian Lee. Uh-huh. Um, no, uh, not well, yes, but not for a long, long time. Um, I saw it at the time when her first drum came out, and I mean, it's, it, it was interesting to hear. I, I can still hear um, her saying, I cannot make him jealous. I have tried, which turned out to be actually a song in uh, her first Roman. <laughs> so, so how's the movie? Have you seen it recently? Uh, I have not seen it either, but I have seen clips, and I will say that Vivian Lee is incredibly beautiful in it. Uh, also, it's a not, it's a early Technicolor movie. Uh, it's I think not that common for a 1945 movie to be uh, for a 1945 British movie, especially yeah, yeah, to yeah, be in Technicolor. Yeah. Uh, but it is, and it does have Vivian Lee and Claude Rains. And so I think it was, it was actually quite a flop as a movie because it's not the most cinematic sure. story in the world wow. uh, and for other reasons, but yeah. it, but you know, it, again, historical interest uh, and also visual interest <laughs> for Vivian Lee's beauty and the Technicolor photography. And, you know, um, a lot of people don't realize this um, uh, because I've talked to people about this uh, and that she made very few movies. Exactly. You know, yes. We really think that she was this um, because of God with the Wind, she must have had a million opportunities and took uh, advantage of every one of them. But I think there were only 11 pictures she made. I could be wrong, right. but it's it's not very many yeah. and uh, fewer than you would think from a major star. And when you think, of course that she won two Oscars for 11 movies. If it is 11, again, uh, I, I'm very willing to be corrected on this, but um, that's a pretty high batting average for Oscars. And I do, by the way, regard Vivian Lee's performance in A Streetcar Named Desire as the best performance I've ever seen an actress give on film. 
Well, as uh, I'm sure you and many of our listeners know, she is she was mentally ill. Uh, she has what would now she had what would now uh, I believe be classified as bipolar, mm-hmm. uh, manic depressive disorder, mm-hmm. and it's so sad because now they have drugs that that could have really really helped her, but it was was too early for that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm sure uh, that's one reason why she didn't have a greater output in terms of film sure. and theater. Sure. Okay, so uh, it's Caesar and Cleopatra at Theater Row. Uh, we have it's running through October twelfth, so you can get over to uh, Theater Row to take a look at that if you'd like, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Michael, you got over to Birdland Theater on Forty Fourth Street to see Everybody Brides, a Resistance Cabaret. So tell us about this. Yeah, this is this fabulous review. Uh, written and masterminded by Joe Keenan, uh, who's one of the creators of one of the best TV sitcoms ever, Frasier. And uh, I've seen uh, several editions of it. This is um, the most recent one. And before I forget, uh, there is one more schedule for this present run this coming Tuesday, October 1st at Birdland. Uh, In the Birdland Theater downstairs, uh, the first time I saw the show was upstairs at Birdland. and uh, but this current run is downstairs in the somewhat more intimate Birdland Theater. Uh, it was absolutely packed when I went uh, last week, and I think they they that it they certainly could have filled the upstairs, but it probably was just a scheduling situation where the room is already booked. Um, so uh, please. Um, Go online and see if they have tickets because I'm telling you, this is just great. His lyrics are absolutely brilliantly hilarious. It's called Everybody Rise, a Resistance Cabaret. And basically every song is <laughs> is um, anti-Trump uh, in one way or another or, or and or anti his administration and all the the – horrible people who surround him uh do not go do not go <laughs> if you uh, are a trump supporter um i don't think you would enjoy it at all um although you sh- i mean uh, theoretically you should be able to because it's the humor is 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 just so hilarious and it's somehow um i mean it's so funny that it seems like it's not mean-spirited even though the things they're actually saying you know, which are all factual, uh, are really, 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 really negative. Uh, I, I, I just can't describe it. It's, uh, they're the, uh, some of the most brilliant parody lyrics I've ever heard right up there with forbidden Broadway. Um, and I'm just going to go through and, uh, give you some of the highlights. This is also a case where if I just give you the title of, of each song, uh, You'll probably be able to guess what uh, the song is that's being parodied, and in cases <laughs> where not, I will I will uh, elaborate. Uh, it opens with "Anything Goes," uh, and that's the title of the the parody as well. And it's all about the unbelievable events uh, that have happened during you know in in the Trump administration uh, during this ridiculous reign of his. Um, then uh, I think the second number uh, was. 
called All I Care About is Trump, um, mm. obviously, the uh, Chicago mm-hmm. parody. Mm. And uh, on this occasion, uh, Trump was played throughout the evening by this incredible guy named Michael Kastroff, who uh, doesn't really, uh, you know, lucky for him, doesn't really look like Trump so much. Uh, but with the help of a ridiculous wig, uh, he certainly pulls it off. And he really, really nails that st- that that voice that those those inflections and the accent and those ridiculous speech patterns of his so he was he, he was just brilliant throughout um last time i saw the show uh, it was richard kind as trump and he of course is uh, a comic genius uh he did not uh make the attempt to actually embody him uh as much as michael kastroff does in terms of um the the speech uh, patterns, but Michael Kastroff just nails it and was absolutely fabulous. Uh, let's see, there was a song called "Why Can't He Behave." <laughs> Uh, uh, slash he's always true to the country in his fashion mm-hmm. uh, uh, so that was about Trump and it was sung by the ensemble and at one point um, uh, always true to the country in his fashion at one point the, the, the word fashion became fascist uh, which certainly seemed appropriate uh, Nick Wyman was in this edition of the show and he sang I enjoy being Mike Pence Uh, (laughs) A parody of I Enjoy Being a Girl from Flower Drum Song. Uh, Christine Petty, who has uh, helped shepherd this show uh, to the stage in New York uh, very much and has been in every edition I've seen, uh, sang The Lady is a Trump uh, as Ivana. Wait, I always have to stop. Melania, I assume. Melania. (laughs) Is it? Melania. Was it the daughter? Was it the? uh... No, it was. It was the. It was the wife, Melania. Okay, all right. I always have to stop between Melania and Ivanka and Ivana. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, uh, Don Junior, which was (laughs) one of the few non-show song parodies, uh, it was a parody of Goldfinger, uh, performed by this great guy named Taylor. uh, His last name apparently is pronounced Crosor. Just brilliantly funny and he i i enjoyed him so much that i looked it up he's in a show uh that's been running uh, off off broadway at st luke's called a musical about star wars oh uh, yeah i saw that yeah did you yeah. yeah well i'm going to that tonight and i and i really probably would not have gone if i hadn't seen him be so brilliant in everybody rise and i i said i, I you know i'm going to go if only to see him in this other show, because he's just hilarious, really, really great and really great voice as well. Um, uh, <laughs> one of the highlights of this show, uh, Everybody Rise, was Rudy Giuliani sung to the theme of Gary Indiana. Uh-huh. <laughs> Rudy Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani. And that was Nick Wyman again. Um, uh-huh. Then we had uh, uh, Sweeney Todd parody "Attend the Tale of Kelly Ann," mm-hmm. and that was Taylor Crosor again. Uh, and it was uh, so it was "Attend the Tale of Kelly Ann," the demon barber of Trump world. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we had uh, let's see, I'm, I can't mention everyone unfortunately, but there was uh, uh, an Oklahoma parody. Uh, it was Omarosa. And that was an ensemble number. Then we had Nick Wyman as Jerry Falwell singing Accentuate the Positive. Uh, And we had um, uh, Be My Guest, uh, which was Trump uh, 
talking to Putin <laughs> about the 2020 elections. Uh, oh, by the way, this uh, show, when I saw it happened the day, the night of the day in which uh, the impeachment inquiry was announced. And I thought, oh, boy, they're really going to make hay with that. But, you know, they were very subtle about it. At first, I thought there was no reference to it. Uh, and then afterwards, I got to see Joe Keenan briefly. And I said, I said, I was surprised there was no reference to the impeachment inquiry. And he said, oh, no, there was. Um, they had adapted a lyric to refer to Nancy Pelosi. Uh, and I didn't I thought that lyric had been there already. But apparently he added it at the last minute because of the impeachment uh, inquiry. So he was really, you know, he, he, this is the kind of show where he really keeps it updated. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, one of the lyrics in Be My Guest is uh, was um, send us loyal Russian minions who can pass as West Virginians. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing. I don't want to give away too many lyrics, but there were a few that were just outstanding. Liz Calloway was in this edition repeating her uh, interpretation of Betsy DeVos singing um, – you you can save a school with a gun, uh, and you get your gun parody. Mm -hmm. um, then there was a God, why don't you love me blues parody from Follies, and that was uh, Jason Robert Brown performing as Roger Stone. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, uh, he was just hilarious. Uh, I have not often seen him perform uh, while not also playing the piano uh and but he it was like he's been doing that all his life so he uh, could have another career doing that i think if he ever decides to give up <laughs> the songwriting thing which i certainly hope he doesn't um we had uh there was a song called my hair uh parody of mine hair from cabaret and that was uh kostroff as trump and uh one of the lyrics in that was uh when viewed from either side, it's like a hamster died. <laughs> Reference to his his wig. Um, let's see. The sun will be hot tomorrow was a climate change song. Uh, and then there was I'm Still Here, sung by Kostroff as Trump, uh, you know, telling us that for the moment he is still here despite everything that's happened. Oh, but nice. but as we know, maybe that that might change uh uh, you know, as soon as possible. We certainly hope so. Uh, and the finale was Heart uh, from, you know, the Damn Yankees song. Uh, and it, and it, uh, one of the lyrics in that, which I really loved, was um, Joe McCarthy is forgotten, my fair lady is revived. So it's about things that last and things that, you know, may really hurt our souls and our hearts, but don't last. And hopefully uh, one of them is uh, is what's in the news right now. And we'll see what happens with that. But in the meantime, Everybody Rise, a resistance cabaret, uh, last performance of the current run this coming Tuesday, the 1st of October at the Birdland Theater. I've known Joan Keaton since he was in high school, and even then he was uh, showing potential of being uh, great, and um, certainly his novel Blue Heaven is one that embarrassed me tremendously because I was on the subway while reading it, and I was <laughs> laughing so hard that I was annoying everybody else uh, who was essentially saying, not that they were glaring at me, uh, essentially saying, you know, what can be so funny? Nothing could be that funny. Well, Blue Heaven is, and Joe Keenan is, so uh, having discovered him in high school and discovered Dick Wyman when he was in a hasty pudding show. Uh, this would be a nice nostalgic trip for me. Um, so I'm going to try to make it over there for the finale. Oh, I hope so. Okay. 
So uh, to wrap up for today, Peter, you got over to see the Idea Awards with New Dramatists. Um, tell us, what, what are the Idea Awards? Well, they're essentially the Brett Adams and Paul Reich Foundation Awards. Um, Brett Adams was uh, a very illustrious agent um, and um, one of the great um, supporters of theater, and so was his partner, Paul Reich. And so as a result, they left money for the Idea Awards. This is only the second year the new dramatists have done this and uh, they give out lifetime achievement awards and they give awards to uh, budding writers so um it, it was a very impressive ceremony. Um, a, a lot of nice people were there. Andre Bishop, certainly from Lincoln Center, was there. But uh, being uh, uh, given the Tooth of Time Awards, uh, a, a phrase that comes from Shakespeare, they gave uh, one to Tina Howe, who um, said how old she was, which I will not repeat, but I was very surprised to hear that uh, she's no kid. But one of the reasons that I was surprised is because I didn't become aware of her until the late 70s, early 80s. And so I assumed that she was just starting out um, as a 20-something, and that didn't turn out to be the case. So that should give hope to all of us um, that uh, there's enough time if we use it. And certainly Tina Howe did and has. And um, I also am very impressed to see that they acknowledged Adrienne Kennedy, uh, who wrote Funny House of a Negro, uh, which is uh, was revived not that long ago um, at the Signature Theater. So uh, so they got their Lifetime Achievement was Alas, Adrienne Kennedy was not there, but Tina Howe was, and giving a very moving speech that also involved part of her personal life. Um, that, uh, But anyway, um, it... The new authors to win uh, include Dave Harris, and um, Dave Harris, I saw a reading of um, his show Tambo and Bones at Playwrights Horizons um, in the spring, and um, I do understand why he would get uh, the prize. Um, this play uh, is about people involved in a minstrel show, even though they don't know they're involved in a minstrel show originally, but it finally dawns on them uh, what they're actually involved with. It's a metaphor. And it's a terrific one. And uh, Dave Harris was quite eloquent in accepting his prize. They also gave um, prizes to um, two trans uh, authors, uh, Kit Yan and Melissa Lee, who have written a musical about a, a trans man who collects tolls at the New Jersey Turnpike. And you can imagine how happy he is doing that. Um, and uh, but frankly, given that the first song started with um, uh, the word alive and uh, the second line rhymed it with arrived um you know where i stand on that so uh but anyway the powers that be decided that they should win the award and um and good luck to them and i uh wish them well and uh hope that uh they do uh fine work in the future so so a very nice ceremony and uh terrific to see all these people who are just so supportive uh, if you are a playwright you must 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 apply to new dramatists because such a supportive organization it's wonderful how they do readings it's such a supportive environment they really want you to succeed and um i i really believe if you're a playwright especially an emerging one find out about them but tina how also indicates that if you've been around the block a couple of times that you can still apply and become a member so so Take a look at New Dramatists Playwrights. Don't don't ignore it. It's on 44th Street uh, between 9th and 10th, a cute little building. And um, make yourself known to them because they will help you if they believe you've got what it takes. All right. 
Okay, so that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayvideo.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can get to Broadway Video's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. Also, if you are so inclined, you can support Broadway Radio by, Broadway Radio by going to uh, patreon.com slash broadwayradio, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia question? The question was, three performers got together to sing a Cantor and Ebb song in one of their musicals. One performer had already won a Tony. One would soon win a Tony. One had to wait a few years for a Tony. Who are the three? What's the song in the musical? I was looking for a certain girl from the Happy Time, their 1968 musical, sung by David Wayne, who had won for Finian's Rainbow, Robert Goulet, who would win for that very show, and Michael Rupert, who would win for Sweet Charity many years later. Tony Janicki was again the first to get it, followed by Jake Leonard, Jeff Hickman, Jeff Valenga, Jack Leshner, Greg Christensen, and Brigadood. Uh, by the way, Mr. Janicki also know there was another possible answer here. Um, the song Mrs. A in the Rink had Liza Minnelli, who had won for Flora the Red Menace, Cheetah Rivera, who would win for The Rink, and Jason Alexander, who would win for Jerome Robbins Broadway uh, sometimes uh, later. Um, but that's five years later, and I did say I had to wait quite a few years, and I, depending on your um, outlook on that, um, we'll see if you think five years is quite a few years. So, this week's question Question. What do Alvin, Bernie, Charlie, Ezekiel, and Wilmer have in common? Hmm. All right. If you have an answer for that, let us know at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.